This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, the tune has started to change coming from the congressional leadership and the president about the quest to rapidly repeal the Affordable Care Act and either replace it quickly or delay that replacement. The operative word now seems to be repair. Well, you know, Mark, I would have preferred improve and enhance to repair, but Mm -hmm. I'll I'll take repair. I think that's progress. And it's been very interesting to see some of the health industry's medical societies weighing in, some of whom had expressed real opposition to the law in the past. As Republicans work to now replace the legislation, they're hearing from a number of health industry groups who are asking, nope, leave certain aspects of the law intact. The American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists ardently opposed to the ACA in 2010 Now they are urging Congress to keep intact certain measures of the law, such as the rule that women can't be charged higher premiums due to their gender, as well as the insurance mandate, which requires people to carry insurance. They note the law has had some positive impact on women's health. A number of health industry trade associations are saying that the 22 million Americans who gained coverage under the Affordable Care Act are now able to navigate the health system more wisely. Top representatives from a number of these organizations have been meeting with the GOP leadership to ensure that certain aspects of the law do remain intact. And I think we'll hear more language like this in the coming months as this new reality sinks in for the leadership in Congress, as well as for the president who uh, had been so adamant about repealing the law. I I guess we can say market forces uh, do come to bear on these issues. Absolutely. And the president has started to sound a similar tune as well, saying that he may not have a replacement pan sorted out until earlier 2018. With the pharmaceutical industry looking at some significant changes, we decided to invite an expert on matters of drug safety and how the FDA works. Alan Cockle is the Senior Director for Health Programs at the Pew Charitable Trust, where he oversees a variety of health topics, including FDA, drug and medical device safety, the pharmaceutical supply chain, prescription drug dependency, and other related topics. He's bringing us a depth of understanding on how the FDA works and how it might be recalibrated in the 21st century to accelerate the drug approval process without compromising patient safety. So we look forward to that conversation. Laurie Robertson also checks in, the managing editor of factcheck.org is always looking to shine a light on misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we'd love to hear from you. Now we'll get to our interview with Alan Cockle in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. Tom Price has been approved Secretary of Health and Human Services, the party line vote, going through in a late night session in the Senate. The conservative orthopedic surgeon from Georgia has long been making a case for the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, even though President Trump has recently said he may not have a replacement plan in place until early next year. Many other congressional leaders are moving ahead with their own version of repeal and replace, or repair in some cases. Senator Lamar Alexander, chairman of the HELP Committee, which governs health policy, is urging more support in Congress for the repair approach, which she says will be far less disruptive to the health care marketplace. Meanwhile, Secretary Price oversees a trillion-dollar agency now with a broad directive overseeing much more than the Affordable Care Act. Meanwhile, at a recent meeting of the Conservative Heritage Foundation, a cadre of Republicans vowed to move ahead with their plans for a swift repeal. 
planning to eliminate certain taxes that help pay for the law by passing budget reconciliation measures that don't require a 60-vote majority in the Senate. This in spite of the fact that numerous industry leaders and some moderate Republicans are warning that ensuing chaos will leave millions of Americans in uncertain territory regarding their own insurance coverage. Still, there's a high degree of confusion and concern within the health care industry as CEOs and budget planners cast their eyes towards an uncertain future under President Trump and an HHS secretary who are so vocally committed to repealing the health care law. The numbers are in, in spite of tremendous downward political pressure from the incoming presidential administration, including canceling ads promoting signups for the Affordable Care Act on healthcare.gov. 12.2 million Americans managed to sign up for health coverage on the insurance marketplace exchanges. This in spite of a spike in premiums for some markets around the country this year and fewer insurers to choose from. Still, those spikes are offset by commensurate tax subsidies under the Affordable Care Act. There was reported confusion among consumers, uncertain whether the individual mandate requiring the purchase of insurance would be upheld in 2017. An estimated 91 Americans per day are dying from opioid overdoses. While the nation's public health officials try to get a handle on this deadly crisis, the company that makes the version of the overdose antidote naloxone is being accused of price gouging. Price for the drug was hiked 550 percent in recent months. Missouri Senator Claire McCaskill demanding answers from Kaleo Pharmaceuticals, which makes and markets the drug. And the FDA has issued approval for an experimental drug that's shown small increase in efficacy for treatment of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, a crippling autoimmune disorder that strikes boys often in their toddler years. The drug has been getting a lot of attention within that community as there's no known treatment to halt advance of the disease. Emflaza, an anti-inflammatory drug, is the first steroid to win FDA approval to treat DMD. This comes on the heels of President Trump promising to support the Right to Try measure, which allows those suffering from terminal illness to access drugs that are showing promise in the clinical trial process, though not yet quite approved for market. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Ellen Cockle, Senior Director for Health Programs at the Pew Charitable Trust, where he oversees a variety of health topics, including the FDA drug and medical device safety, the pharmaceutical supply chain, prescription drug dependency, opioid overdose, food safety, and school nutrition. Prior to joining Pew, Mr. Cockle was a clinical pharmacist in oncology at the London Health Science Center and the Ontario Regional Cancer Center. He's vice chair of the Medical Device Innovation Consortium and a board member of the Reagan Udall Foundation for the FDA. He served previously as a consumer representative on the FDA Cardiovascular and Renal Drug Advisory Committee. He earned his Bachelor's of Science in Pharmacy at the University of Manitoba and did his residency at the Winnipeg Health Sciences Center. Alan, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Good to be with you. Yeah, and may we live in interesting times and certainly lots of activity going on in the world of the FDA. And at Pew, you cover sort of this really wide swath within the pharmaceutical industry. And you spent considerable time analyzing a variety of aspects of the industry, which is covered largely by the Food and Drug Administration. And we have a new administration in charge now. President Trump has talked tough 
about changes he wants to see at the FDA. I wonder if you can help our listeners understand the scope of work done at the FDA, the complexity of the drug and device approval process, and how making sweeping changes such as the ones that are being proposed are not quite so simple. Yeah, I think a lot of people, when they think of the FDA, think of approving new drugs. And, of course, that's one of the things that the FDA does. But they also have oversight over a whole lot of other things, a lot of the food supply, medical devices, tobacco, things that we never even think of, Mm -hmm. like microwave ovens. Uh, There are 300,000 over-the-counter drug products that FDA oversees and 55,000 dietary supplements and, and on and on. And I've heard new commissioners, after they come in, say you sort of come into the job with a vision of what you want to do, and on day one you get hit with a food safety outbreak, and mm. it's, it's like drinking from a fire hose. And, and so there's a lot going on at the agency, a lot of staff, and, and things change slowly there. You know, Alan, I'm reminded of our interview a while back with Dr. Margaret Hamburg, who served as FDA secretary under President Obama. And she really gave us an insight into just the sheer enormity of the scope of work conducted by the FDA uh, and its agents around the world, as you suggest. Uh, and, and certainly, you know, we've seen lots of criticism for what some view as the slow pace of progress for the drug testing protocols. But she gave us an insight into the deficit of personnel and research personnel. Where are we now with this shortage of person power at the FDA? How has it hampered productivity? And, and what do you see happening with that as we move forward? That remains a real challenge at the agency and just within the center that reviews new drug applications, there are about 700 unfilled positions out of a total of about 5,000. So that's a pretty big staffing deficit and that makes it hard for the agency not just look at new drug applications that come in the door. And in fact, they, they do pretty well reviewing new drug applications and generic drug applications. The thing that often gets short shrift, though, is all of the other things that would really help the industry and consumers and patients, which is the ability to have scientists thinking about what should the guidelines be, how should we approach clinical trial design for that next product that's, you know, still in development. And so having a lot of unfilled positions is a, is a real challenge. I want to shift a little to the uh, whole issue of the opioid crisis. You know, I know you've been concerned about the rapid expediting of the approval process at the FDA. Just wondering if you look at the opioid crisis and, you know, the role that the manufacturers of the drugs play that really enticing people, I think, to overprescribing. Any reflections on how we might prevent that type of problem again? You know, it is, you called it a crisis, and that's exactly right. More than 33,000 Americans died from an opioid overdose last year. And, and of course, that's only the tip of the iceberg. For every person who died, there's somebody who's struggling with substance use disorder, mm-hmm. and, and that affects their lives and their family's life and, and their community and, and the economy and so on. So it's, it's really big. You mentioned in your introduction that I was a, an oncology pharmacist at one stage of my career, and, and so I certainly recognize that these drugs are an essential part of the armamentarium for managing pain, mm-hmm. and people who have pain have to get effective 
pain control. But it's certainly true that this increase in opioid misuse has tracked very closely the increase in prescribing Mm-hmm. in the country. And I think the problem there is we collectively use the drugs sometimes in places where we would be better off mm-hmm. uh, using non-pharmacological management and so on. Well, Ellen, you know, the reality of this opioid crisis has been devastating. Communities are trying to grapple with it. Clinicians are trying to grapple with it. You recently wrote an analysis at Pew on what some of the best ways might be to confront the addiction dilemma. And and you said that the medication-assisted treatment approach has so far yielded the best results. And yet we all face the issue of unequal distribution in all areas of the country where frontline clinicians don't have the resources to implement these programs for their patient populations. Maybe share with our listeners the national policies that we're hearing and have seen some progress on. What should people know has been going on? Yeah, it's an epidemic that really requires a a multi-pronged response and changes in prescribing. But once people have developed a dependence on the drug, we have to be able to get them into effective treatment. And we're not doing so well. Only about 1 in 10 people are receiving any kind of treatment And then within publicly funded treatment programs, only a tiny fraction of those include FDA-approved medications to manage the disease. And that is something that the evidence has shown is by far and away the most effective strategy. Once the brain has undergone a chemical change where it's dependent on these molecules, it's usually not just a question of personal determination to get off the drugs. It really helps if in combination with cognitive support and and peer support, you have a drug that helps reduce the cravings or replace the need for that opioid or illicit heroin or or what have you. And so increasing access to MAT, medication-assisted therapy, is crucial. But we also need treatment systems that are ready when somebody decides they are ready for treatment. If you have somebody who has a substance use disorder and they say, you know, I want to get off these drugs, we can't afford to wait three weeks while they get into a treatment program. And so there are states and jurisdictions that have been getting much better at making treatment available, the sort of no wrong door idea where whether somebody has an encounter with the criminal justice system or they walk into a federally qualified health center and say, I would like to have some help to get off the drugs. We have to have systems that take people, manage them acutely, and then transition them to long-term management. So some of that is how we organize the care delivery, and some of that is how we pay for it. And the expansion of Medicaid has been beneficial in getting more people into treatment. Congress in the last year has increased federal funding to states to support treatment programs. So those are all good things. Uh, But as Congress grapples with the future of uh, health coverage, there are real risks. We can take some comfort, I think, in the fact that there is bipartisan recognition of how 
crucial it is to address this crisis. We're speaking today with Alan Cockle, Senior Director for Health Programs at the Pew Charitable Trust, where he oversees a variety of health topics, including the FDA, the pharmaceutical supply chain, opioid overdose, food safety, and school nutrition. You know, the president's been very busy meeting with lots of people, uh, including representatives from some of the largest uh, pharmaceutical entities. And uh, he's promised to take action on reducing regulations and taxes, but they have to do more to bring prices down. And on the other hand, he did receive a, a degree of praise from the rare disease community for promising to advance the right to try bill, which would uh, make experimental drugs more readily available to those with terminal illness. You just raised the issue of bipartisan support. I assume that uh, all this is going to take a willing Congress to make all of this happen. So if we talk about the challenge of drug spending, which is very much front and center, both on the on the minds of the president and many members of Congress, but also the public, it's a it's a real challenge. Now there have been years when drug spending was pretty flat, and there have been years when it jumped up a lot. So last year it, it jumped about eight or nine percent nationally. The big challenge on the drug spending front is that right now one percent of prescriptions account for 30% of our national spending. And those tend to be the new high-cost specialty medications. And sort of good news, bad news. We're Mm -hmm. in a really exciting era scientifically for therapeutic advances. But as more and more of us get access to and need those innovations, that kind of price growth looks unsustainable. And so we have to do a couple of things. I think we have to make sure that where we can inject competition in the market, we do, both with generic drugs and the generic equivalent of biological drugs, but also between drugs that have sort of very similar modes of action. Um, We also have to make sure that we somehow correlate rising prices with clinical value and, and not overpay, something that we haven't historically been very focused on in healthcare in general in the U.S. So there's a lot of policy interest, as you mentioned, both from the president and and from the Congress, how that actually plays out in terms of policy in in the next year or two, I think remains to be seen. In, In terms of the speed of approval, FDA makes its determinations much faster than it used to. And I think it's important to recognize that in the overall timeline of drug development, the months that the application sits at the FDA is a pretty small part of the overall cost. So the the big costs are actually discovering the drug, developing the molecule, running the clinical trials. That's where the sort of long-term savings are in terms of being able to reduce drug development costs. I I don't think people realize that, that it's like nine months at the FDA on average, or maybe it's a little less, uh, that from bench to bedside, that's really not where all the time is taken. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the average, it depends on the, the product you're talking about in, in FDA now has a mechanism for taking the drugs that are kind of newest and most novel and the ones they consider breakthroughs and putting them at the front of the queue and, mm-hmm. and moving them through the process really fast. But yeah, in the, you know, people often say it takes a dozen years to develop a drug. The first 11 years, say, are, are doing the science that leads to uh, mm-hmm. eventually being able to submit an application to FDA. Mm-hmm. You know, Alan, I want to pivot a little bit since we have the opportunity to speak with you. I think 
we were caught somewhat off guard when all of a sudden there was a stir within the scientific and public health communities that the Trump administration was appointing known opponents of vaccinations to some key positions. Certainly, there's substantial medical and scientific evidence that support the efficacy of vaccines for so many diseases. And I think we we're surprised to find ourselves maybe having to fight this battle again. What's your read on that? And how do we keep the current administration and congressional leaders focused on the need to really rely on evidence-based science as we look at these potential new policies and legislations that affect population health so much? We're certainly tracking it very closely. And as you say, vaccines have been one of the great public health successes of the past century. And the concerns about side effects of vaccines have been very extensively studied by scientists at the CDC and and academia. And so it really is crucial that as we move forward, we not take a stance that frankly puts children at risk Because as we know, there are a lot of vaccines that only work if you have a certain level of immunization in the population. And so my if my neighbor doesn't vaccine my doesn't vaccinate, my child may be at risk. You know, uh, Alan, you mentioned earlier that we're in an exciting era of scientific advancement and certainly the 21st Century Cures Act, which had bipartisan support, was advancing some of the activity that's going on. And uh, the act earmarks money for the Cancer Moonshot as well as the Precision Medicine Initiative or the All of Us Initiative, as it's now called at NIH. And we're seeing some uh, pockets of true breakthrough utilizing genomics to create personalized medicine solutions to battling certain diseases. And as you look out over the future of biomedical research, drug and device deployment, how does the country help the FDA adapt to these new scientific orders? And what types of transformations are going to be required to confront some of the more significant 21st century problems that we're going to face in uh, the areas of uh, food and drug safety? Yeah, it's a great question. And as you say, it's an amazing time. And last year, uh, a number of new drugs came to market that cure hepatitis C. There was a lot of focus on the the cost of those drugs, but lost a little bit was just the excitement of a a cure. Uh, You know, and as we look forward, you know, hopefully there will be lots more of those, but you can sort of think in, in a concrete way, well, what if we had a drug that we thought might prevent Alzheimer's disease? But people had to take it, you know, for 20 years before they started to develop symptoms. Mm-hmm. What would a clinical trial for that look like? Right. What would be the ethics of enrolling healthy people into a clinical trial of a drug with unknown effects? So that's just one of the kinds of scenarios that FDA may have to think about and grapple with in the year ahead. And so we need a lot more thinking about clinical trial design and what are the, you know, validating the kind of biological markers that are good predictors of how people will eventually do in terms of real health outcomes. What are the endpoints we should be looking at? What are the different kinds of evidence? Uh, So that's one place where we need much more investment. The other is really beginning to shift from, I think, an old model of thinking of drug approval as really binary. You weren't on the market 
and then FDA approves the drug and you are on the market, or it's the same as true of medical devices, to beginning to see it as a long-term process of continuing to refine and evaluate evidence. I don't think anything will ever replace the randomized clinical trial as mm -hmm. the gold standard of figuring out in a scientific way what something works, but we have also have to get so much better at learning from real-world experience mm -hmm. once something's on the market at being able to pull data from Mm -hmm. health records and insurance claims and maybe eventually even people's own wearable devices right. or, or personal reports and continue to learn and refine our understanding. And so that's going to be a long-term shift for FDA and for society at large. And along with that shift has to come a shift in communicating about evidence so that we move into a, a marketplace of ideas where there's sort of an ongoing refinement of what we know and, and collectively understand about products and also, frankly, how much we're willing to pay for them. We've been speaking today with Alan Cockle, Senior Director for Health Programs at the Pew Charitable Trust, where he oversees a variety of health topics, including the FDA, drug and medical device safety, the pharmaceutical supply chain, prescription drug dependency, and the opioid crisis. You can learn more about his work by going to pewtrust.org or follow him on Twitter by going to at Cockle, C-O-U-K-E-L-L. Alan, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. A great pleasure to be with you. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Laurie, what have you got for us this week? Well, Senator Bernie Sanders and Senator Ted Cruz appeared in a CNN debate to discuss the future of the U.S. health care system, and both men repeated claims we've checked before. Sanders said that the United States spends, quote, twice as much per capita on health care as do the people of any other country. Sanders has a point that the United States spends a lot more per capita than other countries on health care, but twice as much? No, that's not correct. The U.S. spends twice as much as the average spent by other developed nations. According to 2015 figures from the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the U.S. health care spending was $9,451 in 2015 per person. The average for 35 countries was $3,814. But the second place country, Luxembourg, spent $7,765, or 18% less per capita than the U.S. Senator Cruz, meanwhile, said that the Affordable Care Act had, quote, driven up the cost of health care. He said the average family's premiums have gone up $5,000. That's a misleading take on premium growth. For one, that's the rise in the average premium for an employer-sponsored plan for a family, including both the premium paid by the employee and the portion paid by the employer. The total average cost for a family plan rose $5,462 between 2008 and 2016. The average employee paid portion rose $1,923. Also, that increase in employer-sponsored premiums is lower than the premium increase for the previous eight-year period, both in raw dollars and in the rate of growth. 
the total average family plan cost increased by 97% from 2000 to 2008, but it went up by 43% from 2008 to 2016. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Diabetes is a chronic illness for which behavioral choices such as diet and exercise are extremely important. But incentivizing behavior change in large patient populations is very challenging. A recent study done by Emory University and a nonprofit organization focused on improving the health of India's population of a billion people found that text messages sent through smartphones might be a powerful tool in promoting diabetes prevention behaviors. They partnered with India's leading provider of mobile phones, Nokia, to harness a research cohort of a million clients to receive diabetes prevention text messages. So the text messages themselves were developed with Emory University's Rollins School of Public Health, and then we adapted them with lots of consumer feedback. Nalini Saligram, CEO of the Arogya Foundation, the text messaging study was designed to generate improved activity around four simple goals, consume more fruits and vegetables, avoid fried foods, and exercise regularly. The sequence of the messages and how frequently they were texted was all based on behavior change theory as well as on Nokia's experience. So we ended up sending it twice a week for six months. Participants who received just two text messages per week, reminding them to keep their diet and exercise goals, showed an average 40% more compliance with those activities than those who did not receive the messages. Dr. Saligram says it could prove a useful tool for clinicians trying to affect behavior change across large patient populations. A low-cost targeted text messaging system sent directly to consumers, reminding them of the power they have to maintain simple lifestyle changes that can improve their chances of preventing or better managing diabetes and other chronic illnesses. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.